Or she'd be on top of me to do it. No, I think I'm Hi, welcome everybody. Uh, I'm Professor Dowler. I'm really, really happy to be here today to uh, start the proceedings. Uh, we have, oh, that sounded good. Uh, we have our first year MFA class doing their readings today. Uh, and uh, the, it will go in the following way. Uh, I will say the name of the first reader, and then hopefully the readers in turn will say the name of the next reader, and we will pass this on uh, until we reach the end. Are we going to have an intermission, or not? You're the boss. <laughs> no. Yeah. What do you think? No, no intermission? Okay, I've also been told to warn you about the bathroom, which has a clean puddle in front of it, so uh, don't worry about too much about that. Uh, but... But don't drink it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good advice. Okay, so uh, we'll get rolling. Uh, our first reader tonight is Sophia Anchevaria. Uh, and uh, let's hear from Sophia. is mm-hmm. 
cannot be said. The name creates. The name cannot be said. The name destroys. The name cannot be said. I am God, and you have put the name inside you. The name cannot be said. The name must be held, God said. You, God said. You are made in this image, God said. You have been made, God said. One of you is a part of God, God said. You will be named, and you will call yourself in the way you call God. You will be called Adam, Lilith. You will be called Lilith, Adam. God said, you are made. They were named. They were. They were. They were. They were made firm from the firmament. Congenial moisture kissed the dark, rich earth, and they were brought up from it. And God breathed the name into them, and they were. They were made strong and good. They were made even, complemented, necessary, capable. They awoke to never die. They were made right. They were given the world. Their eyes are perfect. They are the first eyes. When they see something, it will be the first time it has ever been seen. Their hands are perfect. They are the first hands. When they touch something, it will be the first time it has ever been touched. My myth, I am an aeon, the aeon of wisdom. I may even be the supreme female principle, the mother of the seven heavens, or is that the thirteenth? And I was born on the seventh day of the seventh month, and on the seventh day of the seventh month of the seventh year, my age was divided into three sevens. I am a counterpart to the unknown father, but I know my father very well. But perhaps knowing what someone has done is not the same as knowing them. Because prophets know me, but I do not know myself. I am prayed to before the Eucharist is consumed. They do not know that this is disguise for an older goddess, perhaps Astarte. seeking to emulate him, to birth without intercourse, 
but I did not give birth to life, but to a shapeless form, a formless substance. This was a punishable offense, and I was cast out of the Paroma, the light above this world. Others say I was seduced by a demon and fell into chaos, or that I tried to know the unknowable. Either way, this world is the fruit of my sin. I am the mother of the Demiurge, a world that is not to be trusted. By extension, neither am I. And neither is Isis. That could be why I have been reduced to a presence, to a lingering, a feeling in the air that says, I am here. You cannot look at me and see me. When you look at me, you see Eve. You see Lilith and peripherally God. come to you now, having taken a mortal form. I cannot be an aeon, spirit, daemon, without an other real home. See now, how my essence bleeds away, leaving blood, bone, and flesh in its shadow. Feel ocean air on imperfect skin and hair tangled in skies and blocks. I left that world for this one to find knowledge without my father, outside my father. Behold, the Aeon manifests herself firm upon the firmament, I kiss my own congenial moisture. I breathe my own breath across the dark unknown. I drag my own hands under the water and haul up the dripping time I've been on this side of the microphone. So I'm going to read um, a little something that might be familiar to some of you. It's, um, it's called Unheimer, and it's 
part of this series of kind of gothic -y poems that I'm working on. And if we have time, I've got something new. But we'll see. Welcome home. Come in, please. I see it has been snowing. Is it winter again? So soon? May I take your coat, your hat? I am so glad you have come. The dining room. Cornucopia. Heavy as lead, mahogany, gilt or glass, glitter or wood, if the spiders would leave off spinning. Set for twelve, never thirteen, you know. Four plates, three forks, a glass or two for wine. The cellar is full. I drink very little. Whiskey, wine, or water. Here, take a pomegranate. Sweet as roses or kisses. But careful, as they are all rotted through. Sit down, I say. We've waited long enough for dinner to begin. The parlor. Burgundy as the open mouth, stained teeth of a young girl drunk on wine. Here it is warm, smooth as teak. The curtains keep out the harsh white reflections of the sun. Does the air pulse with heat from the empty black fireplace? Does it put color back into your blood? The bedroom. You've grown so pale. Perhaps a rest and a dream will revive you. It is only a trick of the firelight dancing on the bed that makes the snakes seem to rise so. I hear them howling too, coyotes perhaps, beyond the garden, on the prairie. Or the sphinx, displeased with her dinner. Maybe she has a riddle for you. The nursery. The yellow wallpaper feels greasy, sour, tasting of sweat. My sisters had fevers here as children. Not me, of course. I came out of another room. I see you found the dolls. Girls can be so careless with their toys. And to think, our father crafted them so diligently in their image. Sometimes I think, mine too. The dressing room. My sisters were very beautiful, you know. They were not made as you or I were made. At their table is a flaking vial, dry white paint, once moist and pliable, to kiss their necks and hide their blushes. But it was made with something strange, and in time their eyes turned very red. Come to the wardrobe. Do you see our bright silks, our dull velvets? Do you see our fox furs, our ragged makes, blue as incense smoke? The heels of their shoes, so small, so thin, are heavy with dry mud, as though they had just come home late through the gate in the garden, and dropped them here at the hem of their dresses, collapsing together, bodies warm from dancing, 
and other things. They were like angels, clad in diamonds, always leaving. I am sorry you have missed them. The Garden The sun is fenced behind thin black hues, branches dipping and dripping, frozen flowers. Under our feet, black ice might crack and shift, stabbing the soil in protest of our coming. Or else we might wait silent through soft drifts, cold as fire, burning our fingertips, nevertheless. And was it an owl that passed? In the beating of its wings, did you feel the absence of sound? I am so glad you have come. Spring again, so soon. I was not made to be lonely here. And now I won't be, ever again. Do you have time for another? Okay. So this is um, something totally new. It's called Seduction Upon the Eve of St. Agnes. And it's um, kind of a weird Keats gothic remix, so... Let's start with a, with a quote from the actual poem. They told her how, upon St. Agnes's Eve, young virgins might have visions of delight, and soft adorings from their lovers receive, upon the honeyed middle of the night. If ceremonies due, they did aright, as supperless to bed they must retire, and couch supine their beauties, lily white, now looked behind, nor sideways, but require, of heaven with upward eyes for all that they desire. Sleet strikes, the diamond window pane. The poet waits, hidden in her wardrobe, his long nose buried in the silken slips that hang like limp seaweed for hooks. He inhales the scent of her, poppied warmth. Hush, she enters. Madeline, her breast and face lit by the wavering light of the candle. She puffs it out. A little seahorse of smoke floats into the dark recesses of the ceiling. Pallid moonshine lights them now. His eyes adjust to seek her still. Her rich attire loosened. It is hard without a maid, but Madeline must manage. Piece by piece, satin slip away. Cold air shivering into the places beneath. Madeline freezes. The poet burns. His fingers are busy knotting a scarf. She is busy on knotting her hair, wreath pearls, painfully catching at curls, tuck, 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 and free. She frees her chest from the weight of skin-warm jewels, wintry moon waxing. Naked, she kneels, kneels on the cold, hard planks of the floor, the poet, his forehead resting on the breath-hot planks of the wardrobe door. Silent, they pray. Her vespers done, never speaking lest the charm be broken, Madeline attire. Wrapped in sheets, down the splendid eyes, Madeline supine, slipping, nude and naked. The poet, bolder now, cracking, creeping, silencing, creaking. But wait, the sleeper, a sound? Dim and blazonings, a light from nowhere, a sound from nothing. Something dark unfurls from the dark recesses. Huge, deep, damask wings. The poet quails, quivers, pales. Dropping. Soft is the descent of a tiger moth, touching, sliding off the sheets, 
gliding hair hands, sandless on the sand of a sleeper. The poet, his heart, tradum, in his ears. Oh, why does she not wake? Not awake, no, but not insensate. Madeline feels, rises, writhing, her own hand seeking, gliding, finding. Crushed to the hovering hardness, she slips the bonds of gravity. The poet bites his vile. A horror, a horror has his love. A devil, a demon devil, dreaming defilement. He crashes through the casement, scattering slippers. The poet careens through the hall, shouting, scattering, fleeing, flailing. Dear Madeline, sweet, sweet lakes. What noise is this, unsacred St. Agnes Eve? And such dreams I was having of my soft love's adoring. Snuggling down, sighing sedately. Perhaps if I sleep, content, more such images I might receive. Thank you. And up next we have Benjamin Siegel. So, I would like to make a, I hate this microphone, um, quick correction, I just go by Ben, um, I also, um, not used to doing these sorts of things sober, so you'll have to forgive me, um, I was going to start with an inappropriate joke, but I've scratched it, um, I would like to thank the UC bureaucracy for helping me understand Kafka better, um, and I also wanted to, um, I don't know. I, I have a couple of things I might be able to do. Um, because... Wait. Um, anyway. Okay. Because I didn't expect people that don't see me like three times a week to be here, I picked things that I haven't done this year because I figured most of you would have heard me do them in workshop by this point and would be bored by them. So... Um, yeah, then a bunch of people showed up and are here, so that's totally bizarre to me. Um, so let me just, uh, this one um, is, the first one's called You Are Today a Man, and it's a, uh, well, it's pretty obvious, but basically it's a monologue from, um, if those of you have had, um, are Jewish or have Jewish friends, you go to bar mitzvahs um, a lot during a certain age in your life, and there's a thing that happens where parents have to come up afterwards and sort of congratulate the kid and tell them how wonderful they are. Um, and this is a father's speech to his son uh, the day uh, of his bar mitzvah. Okay. Um, today, Simon, by this archaic measure, you have become a man. Do you believe it? Does anyone in the room? Regardless, we both, you and I, we both have a speech to deliver. And as it is tradition, I thought at first to make this speech in the standard form of pride and praise. I wrote that speech. I did. I wrote that speech, and Rabbi Zucker approved and even lauded it. And I will admit it had a certain beauty, a certain perfection, a pathos found in the fabric of its loving fiction. It was easy enough to begin with the truth, the typical telling of a flaw in your person, a cause for worry designed to draw laughs. But then came the hard lie of gentling out my insults the always lie of telling my surprise at the remarkable person you've become. Though yes, in a manner of speaking, you are worthy of remark. The obvious place to start being either your head or your birth, both overly watery, stretched too long, smeared in blood, neither being a bit beautiful or having even the whiff of miracle about them. To be fair, I've never seen a beautiful baby, and only rarely does a head augur more than dim cruelties. 
And no, you have not been an unmitigated disaster. I do remember a moment I felt tenderness, an image of you that was at least striking, at least worth recalling. This was after you smashed your face against Denny Johnson, for once a time of swelling instead of blood. Your mother had nothing but a frozen rack of ribs that she pressed to your eyes so as to swallow your face in thawing meat. <clears throat> remember how you lay there moaning? You dripped freezer melt on that t-shirt we'd bought you when you were on that soccer team for which you never started. Even now I, I imagine you rib-faced, the meat and bones to screen and muffle those hacks from your throat that pass for language. To think at thirteen you still so awkwardly shape your tongue to your teeth. Today, as I was to feel such pride, I could only cringe and hide my shame in deep davening. Imagine me, looking out, amazed at these people with their regretted checks already made out in your name. Here I was, bowed over, prayerful, thinking how in good faith could I deliver such a lying speech. How could I read those cards that would sound sour and false to any person with even a passing knowledge of your character? And so this rough and off-the-cuff performance will have to suffice as my contribution to your coming of age. Here then, my hopes, your speech. Son, we see today that you've survived at 13. That you've even memorized a rough recital of these Hebrew noises. This is what must count as accomplishment. There's little else besides that rib-faced spell. I can recall about your youth that one could reasonably celebrate. However, my Simon, I am not ready yet to give up on you entirely. And from this stubborn space of paternal optimism, I can now salvage something of the usual ritual, that traditional father-speech moment in which the elder Jew imparts upon his child a bit of tailored advice. What I suggest is to daily wake and bind your face in frozen meat. Thereby that oblong head and dull face you carry will be transformed into a sight of mystery and feeding dogs. What I imagine for you is blindness set upon by leaping hungry beasts, your body pawed to the ground, your rib mask torn to bits mourningly, until your skin is open to the teeth and tongues of dogs each day and each day after. Um, so that is that one. Um, the second one um, was a thing that I had published recently um, on the... Um, you guys in the magazine Tin House, they have like a flash, flash fiction installment, and so this was in that, um, the Flash Fridays thing. So it's fairly short as well. Um, it's called The Happy Enough Family on the Day of the Sorrow's Wing. Okay. Um, yeah. That they were not working class was listed as a problem for them, something they construed as a problem in order to reach the troubles quota that families from that region were meant to meet. On the ledger, it was listed under problems of excessive guilt. A daughter also, in amounts that exceeded the normal range, was known to think about suicide. She'd even tried that trick once or twice, half-heartedly, as that particular problem counted a long way towards a family's necessary minimum of unhappiness. This month, though, their biggest problem was a meta-problem, was that they hadn't enough problems for the quota, and that didn't count as a proper sorrow. This month, they knew, the weight of their problems would not be enough, even wetted down, even with bits of lead slipped into the pockets. The young one would have to take up self-harm, cutting maybe, or else some symptom of body dysmorphia. The parents would have to think about divorce, or the middle one might, at the very least, affect a form of paranoia or obsessive, obsessive compulsion. Other families had catastrophes, dead sons or burned houses, botched abortions, Lou Gehrig's disease. In this family, so much in need of problems, the oldest son was not even gay, nor were his parents homophobic. The oldest son was, however, resourceful, and he cut out problems from the stone in the quarry. 
He painted famine or below-average grades or sudden onset of aphasia on each block of granite and gathered them and hauled them all to the courthouse for the measurement of sorrows. His stones were so heavy that his family members, who had been fasting and rending their clothes and self-consciously nurturing the development of upper-class neuroses, needed not to have worried over their moderate excess of happiness. In fact, they were found to be the most heavily troubled family in the whole of the town, and the other families, the drug-ravaged and the homeless and the child-burying families, all wept en masse for the happy enough family. The devastated families flooded Main Street with their tears, so that the not-so-unhappy family could raft down the boulevard on an impromptu pleasure cruise in a donated army surplus lifeboat. Irony would have one or several family members drown, pitched from the raft and weighted down by some false stone-hewn trouble of which they were too proud to release, something like allergy to rubber or irrational fear of water. Instead, the family sailed to the edge of their neighborhood and drank complimentary sparkling wine, a gift of the liquor store owner, who, embarrassed of his meager list of sorrows, a failing business, cataracts, knee surgery, two obese children, a loveless marriage, an unfaithful wife, had told the now quite happy family that, really, it was the least he could do. Um, so those were the... Uh, I, I don't know how we're doing in time. I was going to maybe read this other one, but I think I'm probably up. So, um, uh, thanks. <laughs> and up next we have Amanda Martin-Sandino, and she's going to be doing better than I did. Thanks. <laughs> Okay, bear with me. I seem to have lost my glasses. I will try to read. <laughs> okay. So I'm just going to read a couple poems, and hopefully someone will tackle me when my time's up. Sound good? Okay. Uh, the first two are very new pieces. I wrote Monday, Tuesday. Um, the last two are a couple years old, so, you know, we're preparing for a wedding. Um, Paradis Azazel The body of a twelve-year-old girl dressed in cosmetics in a shirt with a sweeping neck. You see she has breasts and is grown, though she is short, frailly slender. The waif speaks to the other woman, who is tall and has such long hair. Paradis smokes these long, thin cigarettes with the print of her colored lips when watching, no one could resist the anguish of desire. Would I wear that burning paper or that tar? The sound of the inhaling, the exhaling of gray fumes on white background, dark clothing. The film has no color but the red, always red. The red of her lips, reminiscent in my mind. The little girl's coat in Schindler's List. A metaphor placed into the context. There is no red. The monologue lasts five minutes, maybe more. The woman speaks through the history of her sex life, which is her life, altogether, this sex. The way falls not in love with men, but in love with the act of making love and the power it brings to her. She inhales deeply from her cigarette. Men are inescapable. The judge that arrests one lover becomes her next lover after lover finding his way to her bed, and that is the great love of her life. We don't know how she ends up on the bridge, just that some man or another disappointed her, but anyway, she wants to be dead. 
The plan to jump from the bridge into the mist because it's supposedly a picturesque way to shuffle off this mortal coil. In the bridge, we see so many people leap into the San Francisco Bay, caught in time-lapse photography. Gabor tells her there are better ways to get herself killed, more socially acceptable suicides, if you will. She can be the target girl for his knife-throwing act. The waif is too beautiful to be sad, but he is too sad to be beautiful. When she does jump, we know she will not die. She married Olivier once. It's an old song, you wouldn't know it. Some youths have aged souls. They soak in the blues of a music composed on a broken heart. The young man who knows chivalry has been resurrected. Everyone loves a postmodern knight in shimmering breastplate. When he woos me with his guitar and the words of Coots and Lewis, I once again remember falling in love some fifty years ago and never falling out. Psalm I knew you once, we somnambled on across the dreamscape, full of glowing steam-powered street lamps. We were a glass-light romance, wearing goggles with green lenses, piloting mechanical monsters with large firefly eyes and escape hatches in the feet. We commingled our bloods, cut open our gloves on an orrery's moon, promising to avenge each other for each and every wound. How are we to know our promise would extend beyond the collective sleep mind to plague the waking imaginations with thoughts of a romance yet unconsummated, the taste of machine kisses on our mouths? Contortion. Each and every time you slip and stumble and haphazardly sweep into my sideways-leaning so-called life with those tangled, blushing strings of permed in curls and snaring and springing into crazy animation while snaking nimble-like, a leaping, slit-tongued beast ruler of gaze and glare and stare and gawk, making the breast-bound pumping apparatus attempt auto-liberation so that it's tripping down and lower, crushing into the wiry net inexplicably and most intricately, twined into those menstrual-looking locks when I'm ditched and road-splattered, illegal hitchhiking on the side of I-5, contemplating road-killicide, borderline spontaneous combustion, I see a self-aware nimbus cloud making sweet but silly wishes to metamorphose all Kafka novelesquely into a happy-as-can-be forecast of sunny, summer-smiling, child's run-around laughing days of freedom when we can ride the unicorn merry-go-round and thousand-foot ferris wheel Boyer watching the amateurs eating too much blue cotton candy, and dream in a wildly whimsical youngster fashion of empirical forever that could only last a little while, and will wilt and wither, rose-like, one week, seven days, some number of hours and seconds and minutes, each and every single time you willy-nilly stumble, stub your toe into my life every goddamn time. Thank you. is Keith McCleary.
I'll take that. Let's just have a roll call. I stayed three days till the storm was well out of range and it seemed safe to travel again. The elder woman was a painter. She called herself Maureen. To some extent or another, it seemed she'd made some sort of name for herself on what she'd done. But I wasn't so sure how far that went and made no query on the point. The younger woman was her daughter, and it seemed her lot for the time she was there was to attend to Maureen's day-to-day while the older woman painted. But I got the feeling that the younger was just waiting, waiting for something larger to reveal itself, and that even as she care took, it was the simplicity of chores and routine that was really still her mother taking care of her, while the dark, twisted tanglings of youth just ensorted in her mind. I didn't find her sullen, but peculiar, something hungry and wistful there, a last seed on a dandelion bud, only clinging on by short hairs, but not quite able yet to blow away. By day, I helped her her with chores, while Maureen painted in a studio that took up much of the house. In the evenings, time was much my own, and one night after supper, Maureen's daughter and I walked out to smoke among the hay bales one field over while the sun began to set. I don't see myself here forever, the daughter said, dragging on a cig I rolled for her. These are good, she paused, looking at the smoke curling up from the joint. She dragged and blew out. I'm going to save up and move, but... And she threw a thumb over her shoulder. But she needs me. I nodded, and I wondered again on who was needing who. Neither of them much asked me what I was doing, or how I'd come to end up drunk and stinking on their front lawn. There seemed to be an understanding, a practical understanding of hard times, as if whatever story I might tell them wouldn't clear up anything they couldn't already assume. Some folks is like that, and it don't always fall in line with just how much bad and toughness they've been through already in their lives. There's just a knowing of how things is, and how they always been. I think I might have offered up some cursory words over dinner that first night after I'd bathed and borrowed a clean shirt from a chest of clothes on the second floor. Something vague I'd said about being in a bad way, about getting lost when here and there, about not quite being able to shake a fever that had plagued me since the winter's thaw. And it was accepted, maybe suggested, that more could be said once I was feeling better. A conversation that never came because it never needed to. Bad things all blend, given emptiness and time. It was the last night, early after dark, when we three was sitting around in Maureen's studio, I was going through her work with no small admiration, though I kept the noise on that mostly to myself. Maureen's daughter watched out the window as the light disappeared in the west, while Maureen puttered away on an easel in a distracted and discontented way. Tattoo man, she said to me, blowing out smoke. You gonna look for more circus work when you leave here? Is that your plan? No, ma'am, I said. I had enough of that. I'll just look for labor work, I guess. I don't know exactly where. It's a pity, said Maureen. Waste all that art that got done on you. Except those empty patches. What's that about? I looked down at the spots where my skin spoke poked through. 
There's one across my sternum and twin spots high on either shoulder. And there was a fourth below the back of my neck that I, of course, would never see. I suppose I just never figured out what to put there, I said. It seemed final-like. It seemed easier to wait till something struck me. That's your problem, Sue, Maureen said. That's exactly it. And she laughed in her throaty crow's cackle, but she didn't explain more. Maybe, I said. I watched her daughter lost in thought against the late summer sky. Come here, said Maureen, and she brought a wooden chair next to her at her easel. She slapped a hard hand down upon it and beckoned to me with one claw. I stood up and crossed the room to her and sat down again. Take off your shirt, she instructed, and I did it so. I saw her daughter's eyes widen, but just as soon as something flickered across them, it was gone. Now sit still, Maureen said, and she wiped down the blank spot on my chest with a damp rag. Then she turned to her right, where I saw what she'd been playing at behind her easel. Several jars of muck were lined up, watery and clotted with half-mixed clays. She dabbed a brush on one and looked at me, looking queer at her. Now listen, she said. I never had a man as a canvas before, and here you are. This is a kismet meeting, Sue. I don't know if you've realized that yet, but it's true. I see you, and I must paint. So let me do what I'm meant to. Well, all right, I said. Maureen went to work on the center of my chest, painting something I couldn't see. She worked quick, like the picture was already there and she was just filling in color, though what she saw weren't at all clear to me. You know why we never asked you about yourself, Sue? She said as she worked. You ever wonder that? Politeness, maybe, I said, not following where she was trying to lead. Just then, her daughter spoke up from behind me at the window. You talked, she said. That first night when you were stone drunk, you talked. I looked at Maureen, and she nodded to tell me it was true. You asked for someone to come back to you, she said. You asked someone to let you go. You told someone you'd never meet them. You told someone you were sorry. Four voices, Sue, she said. Four holes in you where pain can't go. Four clean spaces on your skin. Maureen looked at me. I'm filling them all in for you, Sue. Kismet. Now sit back. We were always meant to meet this way. Thank you. And next up, we have my dear friend, Hannah Taylor. Gosh, Keith is always such a tough act to follow. <clears throat> I have a number of disparate poems, so I apologize for the incohesiveness. Ceremony. Flapping and gasping, writhe gills collapsing on grass. Scraping fish scales, slime scratched beneath fingernails. We dressed you in pelts then. 
and danced bare, splintering our souls. You had flowers in your teeth. You had scales in your eyes. I stripped you bare, then bare in your bloated abdomen, contracted your knees, cupped phosphorescent, phosphorescent in my palms. You screamed, you twisted. But you're grown now, and this, this is what we do. Stained, satiated, rubescent, heaving on shorelines. Gaseous and acidic eggs leaking into silt. We slit you then down the middle, sang, sang, and we drank praises. You had rivets in your legs. You had opals in your cheeks. Your skin was cold, reflecting wet abalone bare. We ate praises. Placental rotting placid current lapping at toes. Lappy strippings drying, cracking open under scales, shedding into sand. Discomfort. Coils and pinpricks, abdomen bent, twisted, collapsing in succession. Muscular spasm, intense gasping, bright yellow acidic, concave chest burn, 4 a.m. patella in sternum, knife in utero, rotating, hemorrhaging, scapula squeeze, close, refrain of breaks mid-spine, cold steel, twisting dorsal, walls arcing currents, vibrating waves through retinas, red occipital flashes, kneaded lobes with bricks blunt force on concrete cerebrum. Snaking, radiating nasal passage, coil through cranial orifices, engorged lymph bulge, epidermis vermilion and flame, throat tremble and shut, dry cracking shaft, bits of silicone cemented, arid esophagus and evaporate iris, mandible, grinding, misplaced, socket lock and reverberate, brooks, gnash, scrape, misaligned. Enamel eroded, bearing calcified tissue, pink empty sockets, biting soft skin shreds, fleshy rose underbelly of raw ridged lips. Seize. Hypnotized, spiraling into the axon, head synaptic space, branching out, thin gnarled fingers scratching, locking at the joints, convoluted by electric impulse. Spasm, spasm arc, spasm arc twist collapse, spasm arc twist collapse, con collapse spasm thrust, thrust arc twist convo, con convo, convolute, convulse, arc spasm twist, eyes roll back, tongue swell and drip black and thick down throats. Propulsions of electricity, lost in the wide absence, dendritic axon, convoluted, synaptic space. Crow. The negative space, the sky between the leaves, no shadows breaking. The pattern of smooth, uninterrupted gray. There may be a little blue in there where I am, overlooking. It rains small leaves, plastering sidewalks, in a smooth, uninterrupted pattern, mottled wetness broken by the negative space beneath the awning pine. A crow. The black crow shape in the tangle, branches crisscrossing, he hops across. I feel smoke up from my cigarette. Periwinkle cloud against the grain brown and the few 
splotches of space between the boughs of inverse sky, tobacco fields. You said cut tobacco. We shared smoke by metal tracks, movement between burn and inhale, blue letting on space between air and lung, burn and exhale, char and cinder, soft ball, crumble between ground and lung, burn and breathe your breath into me. Prospect Street. Spending nights in shops, smoking still is permitted on patios, desks too hot for bras, old shirts reading by neon, discussing physics and the nature of man, and a cloud of haze sipping tea steeped with roses. Analysis. You etched a composition on my side and filled the lines with watercolor. I poured a glass of ink and stained your fingertips. We folded the paper and dissolved in our mouths. We wrapped our bodies in canvas and frayed at the edges. We hung our skin in galleries and recited the words. You wrote a poem with your legs and traced it in grass. I wrote a poem with my hair and painted a crosswind. We wrote poems with our bodies and adorned sheets with metaphors. We tore out pages and deconstructed meaning. We read each other's skin and tasted the words. Meaning moist. Coats of down, bathed, white light outside the trees, lean and bend back arch in the middle. Faded skins, dimming, draining pallor, a pelvic divot, dividing, casting, dancing shadows on a Navajo wall. Protective paint, iron holes at the eyes and mouth, rage winds, gusting words, words that beat against the window. Coats of white linen bathe molten aris, alchemist sky, meaning flushed, meaning ornamented, meaning undecorated skin inside a window. Steam rises clouds under space in the small, in the back gap and gaped moist above the tempest. Immunity. I'm getting used to your immune system, constellation of fingertip bruises your shadow of your touch on the surface of the sunflowers in the vase on the nightstand next to a white blanket stained. The imprint of body, of bodies, sweat in the folds, remind at night, pheromones, faint messages, tell me your system is viable for breeding bruises. Thank you. Next, we have Hiroki Araki Kawaguchi, also known as Kik.
You should have added it after me. Um, sorry, this might be more coughing than reading. See how this goes. How innocence works. Suicide and pedophilia. Two activities you only have to attempt before being classified as the signifier. This is misreading. One cannot speak pedophile and expect to produce an occasion of pedophilia. One can only generate the neurobiology of pedophilia, meaning inside your brain, there is a very tiny man molesting an even tinier boy. These actors are so minuscule that to the rest of us, it is as though no actual crime occurred and we arrest no one. Except sometimes we arrest Michael Jackson because whether an actual crime has occurred or not, the actors have accumulated over the neurochemical sediment of 10 billion and the signified is approximately 60 feet high and carrying a rhinestone glove that can net a Cessna aircraft. So maybe innocence is a matter of largeness, though not always, because it becomes more difficult to fathom pedophilia when our idea of the child becomes very large. For example, if a child the size of Michael Clark Duncan claimed molestation by a man possessing gross length and girth of Vern Troyer, <coughs> we would hesitate to arrest the very tiny pedophile. We would not ignore it, but we would no more possess the neurochemistry to achieve a mental study of violation as we would an effective pair of handcuffs. Maybe innocence as a matter of relative size. If the pedophile is a man the size of Dakota Fanning, we would want the child to be the size of a tabby cat. Or well, we wouldn't want it. It would just make innocence easier. I suppose you were wondering why I haven't said anything about suicide. <clears throat> Genius. <coughs> That's the name of the poem. <laughs> When someone, <coughs> excuse me, when someone tells me her child is displaying genius behavior, I get so excited I pee a little. <laughs> Extrapolation gets me jittery and then I pee my pants. When she says she is two and speaking complete sentences, I say Einstein was seven before he could talk and what a retard. <laughs> if she says he is six and already has a job squeezing lemons into a bucket of sugar, I say, Jesus never had a job until 30, and think what's possible here. <laughs> Every day, I think the earth is getting better. Every day, the past grows more rotted under shitty leaves. Children are reading dictionaries at three, as did my cousin Arthur, who twice survived addictions to rednecks butter and the white pony. Not meaning the dictionary has got anything to do with amphetamine abuse, but it could have on survival. Survival is harder all the time. I think it is because we are all getting better. Not only intelligence, but appearances too. People have been saying to me, their son or daughter is going to be exceptionally beautiful. I believe it. I tell them, oh, I've been watching him, and I can't wait to make that young lady my wife. <laughs> if someone comes to me crying, says her, says her child doesn't compute, speak, walk, Looks like he'll never be handsomer than the sack of smashed assholes he now is. 
I tell them, I have one friend who pushed you hard. Her kid worked her digits to the bone, got hooked on hillbilly salt, got abducted and impregnated, got crucified for the afterlives of sinners. Life is not a race. Slow horses, quick horses, get equal tethers from the edges of their gates to the Kumamoto slaughterhouses. Remember my poor aunt Minnie, the police arriving one morning to tell us she'd been raped by a necrophiliac. It is the chronology of some people not to lose their virginity until five years after they die. Nobody rapes a crybaby. Nobody rises in flames without their nest of ash. <clears throat> Only vultures. I want you to think I am sensitive and not only an asshole most of the time. I cry about things sometimes. I cry so much when a dolphin is murdered. I cry about happy things, too. Susan Boyle sings really good. I think, what a magnificent noise coming from that disheveled woman's face. Think what's possible if the singer is actually more hotter. That is the definition of an angel, when a woman stuns you twice first by being attractive, and then by having another quality. <laughs> She's a doctor or says funny things she didn't hear from anywhere else. She thought them with her actual mind. <laughs> Stunning women are life's great miracles. Dolphins are number two, followed by magicians. <laughs> Disheveled women have their role too, but they don't exactly make me doubt. A cruel, random nucleus is swallowing our universe from its own funky asshole. Is there God or only vultures waddling with their pincers out? I don't think I'm perfect. I go to the gym a perfect amount, but I'm still probably only an eight or a nine. <laughs> That's for white women. Asian women's standards, I get somewhat better. But could you ever truly call it Asian trustworthy? I am changing my mind on this all the time. I know I could never marry or be driven by an Asian, but could I actually value what an Asian thinks? of my existence, moving around on its muscles. You shouldn't think all I do is go to the gym and get strong. I am no vampire to avoid looking at my reflection. I like to laugh and look out at the stars. What do you think is out there? I do think sometime in our lifetime, I will have to fight an alien. Do you think he will be all slimy? I will have to fight him and maybe I'll die. I hope I die deflecting his slime to save you. I hope I cook down beside you. As I sit up, my face somehow still fastened to the gravel. It sputters back. It is a rash upon the rock. My muscles flare underwater. My horns fill with tears. I hope I hear you say, I am still worth recovering. This one. I feel like I've been up here for an hour already. Okay, maybe eat some love poems. Bank robbery. You know this one? I once loved a dead woman. She was alive when I met her, but I didn't love her then. I loved her sometime later. In dreams, she sought me out, and I got to know her better. She lost weight too and loosened up sexually. Now she's dead. Then she was too, but not before, not when I did not love her. In my memories of her, I am never in love. I am always thinking, you have a smelly scarf and mangy hair. 
Why do you let your dog chew your scarf when you will see me later and have just one scarf? <laughs> now I think if she were here, I would pack my mouth with her hair. I would sip the yarn from her dog's mouth at the foot of her living bed. I would eat all her clothes until she was only naked and always fucking me out of her nakedness. I cannot revive her by my love, only my disinterest, and somehow in dreams. <coughs> When I awaken, my pillow has raped me. Or maybe I raped, but wasn't I unconscious? It happens this way sometimes. A man cuts off your leg, and you dream your leg is asleep beside you. It's true what they say about missing a leg you didn't know you loved. You think you should have done more with it, maybe a little hop. Sometimes it is like my love has killed her. It didn't happen this way in life. In life, she was shot in a bank robbery. She was robbing a bank. I wanted you to know before you felt sorry for her. This is not about all that. It is about feeling sorry for someone else. Me, perhaps. She died with a ski mask covering her face and hairdo, which I think is so sad, because she never went skiing ever. <laughs> or saw the snow emptying so heavily out of the sky. I told her I would take her skiing, but I took Angela instead. I took Angela and said, I do not love you. Now I don't dare ski. Well, sometimes I ski, but not very fast. <laughs> Do you believe in ghosts? On my bed, I scratch the emptiness beside me. And in my dream, she says, that feels good. I think it is her. Her back is to me that she cannot turn around. <coughs> sometimes I turn around and pretend I do not dream. But that is not really true. That is just the amputee in me. I fling to the ocean and do not let float back. Pull down the stairs, drag through the mud. I would like for you to try and kill me. I would like for you to try and strangle me in the shower. I would like if you had no hair when you strangled me. It is not that I am upset by hair. It is that, that I know you are not the type to give away your DNA casually. <coughs> I want you to take killing seriously. I want you to be naked when you try and kill me. Because you remember how liberal I am with DNA, you will not like it to muck up your dress. You will want to easily spray the DNA from your apparently prepubescent body. You are a fan of convenience and the godliness of a shaved woman beneath running water. I would like for you to fail. I do not want to die just as I am getting the exact thing I've always wanted. I would like to pass out and for you to think I have expired I would like you to lean in real close near my face with a feather, but for the vein to be too dampened to detect breathing. I would like you to slap me a little and pinch the tip of my cock between your fingernails. I would like for you to decide you will drag me into the woods in my shower curtain. I would like to be wrapped in, like a leftover in my curtain and pulled down the stairs through the kitchen. I would like for you to be sweating and complaining about how heavy I am. I would like you to get embarrassed when you are caught by police when dragging me through the lawn. I would like you to say, it isn't what it looks like, and we are just playing a game. I would like to see you several times in court over the coming years. I would like for you to be wearing an unflattering prison jumpsuit and for your mane to be growing in thickly. I would like for you to be forced to talk about me, about how you wrapped me in the curtain and tested my cock. I want you to say you are sorry even though you are assuredly less than sorry, I want you to dream of me. 
when trying to achieve a blackness of your mind, my bright body at the end of your arms. Hungry, hungry hippos. Our deepest concern in this country of America, most concern-worthy country on the earth, is horny zombies. They are precisely what their name professes them to look like. They are flesh-eating zombies that can grow horns and sometimes get horny and try and fuck you. <laughs> I suppose we could call them horny, horny zombies. But they are not always horned and not always trying to be fucking you. Sometimes they are just very still, sitting in their chairs. But seeing as how any one zombie at any particular moment could either be growing a horn or growing his zombie penis to be trying to fuck you with, it is marginally safe to assume they'll be horny in some shape or form. I know you think I am being sexist. You are saying, Keek, you are being sexist. Saying, he is only growing zombie penis, and not, she could also be wetting her zombie vagina for rape. <laughs> but lady zombies rape nothing much, unless they are near Channing Tatum. And you do not even need to be horny or zombie to like raping Channing Tatum. Lady zombies do not even have vaginas to moisten. In fact, they have even larger penises, and can be observed slapping them against the cheeks and noses of lesser zombies. They're sort of assholes before you go defending them. They're more hyena than human. You should know the fuck you're talking about before you call Keek sexist. <laughs> he might not have even written this shit. Angela could have written it, and she's not sexist at all. Well, she's sexist, but not in a bad way. Angela says we cannot get behind horny, horny zombies because the silliness of the name undermines the gravity of the threat. <coughs> we would not want to call a priest who sodomizes young boys a holy man of manly buttholes. Just doesn't sound dangerous enough. I do not want to guffaw in the face of danger or ever use the word guffaw again. <laughs> I do not want to jerk where a butthole has suffered a priestly encounter. Jokesters are as much assholes as lady zombies, rubbing their cocks against my lips when I'm dozing in the sun. Do you know hungry, hungry hippos? That's okay to chortle over, but not zombies, which are growing more dangerous and more of a concern and hornier all the time in America. I'm glad, I'm glad we didn't end on that. Um, so the next person who's going to read is Kat. What a very tough act to follow. <laughs> I'm sorry if I'm interrupting. <laughs> Thanks. So my name is Kathy Anasoni. Um, so I'm always a, a nervous, nervous wreck. And it seems like my words are a disaster when I speak. So if I don't sing something to myself, I promise you, just halfway through the reading, you probably won't understand anything I'm saying. Um, so the last time I performed my pieces out loud, I disguised my song as part of my performance. Uh, but this time around, I'm just telling you that I'm going to sing first, and that's all I'm going to say. Benediction commune Qui met confiance dans ses Oui, 
qui met espoir en lui. Il y a tant qu'on qui plantait beaucoup de la rivière. Qu'a trempé pied chaud, s'il y a de l'eau. Et ça n'a pas fait rien, la saison chaleur Parce que les feuilles ont toujours peur. Et saison chaleur passée, ça n'a pas fait moyen. M'a toujours donné, m'a toujours donné, non, This first piece is before I became an MFA. As night is sunk in today, the sky is a healing bruise to which the smell from bread ovens rise. At the bottom of clouds, shapes burn into the sky, reds, paperback yellows, and guava pink when grandma makes the tea. A rooster's silly cackle is my sister actually who pulls covers from beneath me, pokes her butt and chin in opposite directions, and cock-a-doodle-doos. Early risers are hard workers, says Grandma. They'll meet success early in life. They'll have more marrow in the bone, more substance to speak of. But for me, the best gift of waking before the sun are the things you can be first to find. Early risers are dew collectors. They can catch wet breezes that sit on cracked window seals where oceans left them to die. They can cross paths with early rising sea creatures, heavy-tailed mermaids, shipwrecked ancestors walking the breadth of the sea. They can hopscotch away or towards the sun. They can jump rope without fleas. That's if you're from where I'm from. Here, ocean is our backyard and children float naked for whole parts of the day. When the sun yawns, they lead goats past broken fields, scraped as knees, to grass from the other side. On the ocean and the shore, boats lie, boats painted with pastel suns and turquoise seas, boats sleeping in pairs, toppled over or on their rumps, boats for the fishermen, and the fishermen are for the wives, and the wives are for flushing out of cupcake-colored houses, perched crookedly by the sea. Early rising marks are bare back hills with pride. Women and men rocking the streets, spice contenders, shoe shiners, and marchandpins with bread baskets the shape of wombs. Bread in squares and in the shape of a star winking. Bread hot and sighing. Bread their tummies flat open to the world. So soft and newborn, they can wake you from the dead. This piece is post MFA. In a dying sunset, near old ocean beds, we found misshapen rocks waylaid by an angry hand. We found them stranded on the shore and hid them for the grandchildren to find. The posse of boys who run the broken streets, fringing the narrow flab of our leaning homes, are boys with a damaged past. 
They scream and holler at night. They whimper in the midnight. They call for their mothers to come. Thank you. Thank you. Questions? Yes. I think that sounds great. Shall we line up up here? And, uh, yeah, come on up.